Dead Guys Don't Write. He only has the job because his old man owns the company. And a cushy job it is. Toughest part is getting his butt out of bed at 4.30 in the morning in his parents' swanky house in the leafy burbs and making the hour and a half drive to the passenger ship terminal in Midtown. Getting home's no picnic either. He usually pulls out around three, but even by then the Lincoln Tunnel is all jammed up with ticked-off commuters, and it can take two hours or more to get home. No problem. He has a good relationship with time and a very mellow disposition. He smokes a joint and pops in some Credence or Van Morrison, maybe some Bob Marley. He's just starting to get into Bob, the whole laid-back spiritual reggae vibe. You know, he doesn't want to hassle anyone, and he sure as hell doesn't want anyone hassling him. He jokes around with the guys on the job, you know, the crew, the laborers and dock builders and operating engineers. He buys coffee and donuts and buttered rolls and most of the time doesn't collect any dough for it. Makes no difference. They don't like him. He's the boss's kid, a spoiled rich kid with the cushy job. A good part of the day, he sits up in the empty lounges overlooking the docks and the Hudson River and New York Bay. Sits up in the posh, cool, and summer, warm, and winter lounges reading the 100 greatest novels ever written. Don Quixote, The Charterhouse of Parma, Huck Finn, Moby Dick, 100 Years of Solitude. And of course, writing, scribbling, madly, filling notebook after notebook with stories, characters, plots, and themes. He has just one overriding ambition in life, to become a novelist. And not just any run-of-the-mill novelist, but a novelist of import, a novelist in search of the great American novel, the one novel that will once and for all define the American experience. Well, it recently occurred to him that he might need three novels to accomplish this. A trilogy, broken down by both space and time. North American magical realism. A dreamlike Protestantism consumed by greed and violence. And the all-encompassing illusion that we Americans are the chosen people. Good and great, and of course benign, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, that we were and still are a bunch of bloodthirsty racists, hell-bent on manifest destiny. He dropped out of college. Such a waste, he insisted, of my precious time. That's all we got, he tells anyone who'll listen, time. And it ain't on our side. Rushes past like a full-force gale. He works for the family engineering and construction company. Saves his dough, then takes off on these solo rampages around the world in search of meaning and to ask Brits and Colombians and New Zealanders and Hungarians and Kenyans what they think of America and Americans. He listens closely to what they tell him, and he writes it all down in his notebooks. Yeah, the job, okay. It's a piece of cake, but Christ, somebody's got to do it. A multi-million dollar contract between the family biz and the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey. 
repair and rehabilitation of the passenger ship terminal on the Hudson River in Manhattan, piers 88 and 90. So says the contract. All work build, time, and material. Which means both the company and the Port Authority need to keep accurate records of man-hours, time, and everything used to make repairs, material. Every morning and afternoon, he records who's on the job and what function they perform. This includes dock builders, laborers, operating engineers, oilers, gophers, foremen, superintendents, and record keepers. Throughout the day, he needs to record every pile driven, every creosoted piece of timber bolted to the pier, every nut, every bolt, every spool of wire used to wrap a pile cluster. Every man and every item has monetary value. His job is to, quote, keep a close eye and don't miss a goddamn thing, end quote. So instructed his old man, a great lover of money and authority. Miss anything and it's money out of my pocket. At first, it had all been a burden. He felt like he had to hang around on the barge or even down on the float stages and watch like an eagle waiting for its prey. But after a while, he realized this was ridiculous. A head count of the crew and a thorough accounting of all materials first thing in the morning, then a quick visit every couple hours, and another thorough accounting at the end of the day was all he needed to keep perfect records. The rest of the time was his own. To read and to write. It was perfect. The perfect job for a guy with so intense an ambition. And in a couple months... If he saves most of his paycheck, which he will, which he always does, he can take off for the Far East for at least a few months, maybe six months if he lives like a peasant. Nothing so grand as living like a peasant. Give it up, the old man recently advised. Give it up. Every idiot with a pencil and a pad thinks he's a writer. I tell you, son, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your life. Join the company full time. Get to work, buy a house, get married, have some kids, and buy a bunch of crapola so you can spend the rest of your life paying for it. Come on, be a man, son. Be a man. Be an American. Yep, that's what the old man told him. Beck tells him that every goddamn day. He thinks, but doesn't say, I'd just as soon be dead. And by the way, what the hell is wrong with a good healthy, formidable ambition. And fuck them all who think he's a near-do-well, a do-nothing. Nothing he can do about the flocks of sheep bleating into the wind, trying to change their minds, nothing but a fool's errand. Even, even as a young whippersnapper, he knew the only thing that mattered, the only thing, was the chaos swirling around in his head. But yeah, okay, he thinks about it, he does, he's getting older, he thinks about it, his old bud's starting to pull down the big bucks, financial security, you know, there's there's stuff he wants, there's stuff he desires, maybe a nice little spitfire, a turntable and a preamp, an electric guitar, oh shit, 2.30 on a Wednesday, the workday over, he says so long to the dock builders, the laborers and the engineers, Dead of winter now, cold and raw, blustery wind blowing, sun already low in the western sky. He takes a picture of that sun with his brain. He knows one day he'll put that sun into words, 
Use it in a story. It's all, all of it, every thought, every encounter, every breath, every pain, every ounce of doubt, fodder for the stories. He crosses the barge and climbs down the ladder to the float stage. He counts piles, records numbers in his ledger, does his job. Something there, wait, something there floating in the water. What the hell is that? Oh my God, is that a body? Holy Christ, it's a body, a dead body, bloated and smelling like death. He grabs the pike pole off the stage and uses it to snag the dead guy's jacket. His heart races as he pulls the body alongside the stage. He thinks he'll secure the body to the stage with a length of rope and then go call the cops. He has to go call the cops. But just as he squats and leans over, a bow wave from a passing tugboat slams against the float stage and knocks him into the river. He lands on the dead guy, screams, panics, swallows a bunch of river water. The water, it's bitter cold, just a few degrees above freezing. He slashes at the water, tries to pull himself up onto the stage. No good, can't do it, too high, too slippery. He screams again, no one hears, he's all alone. Another bow wave strikes the float stage. The stage sways and strikes him on the side of the head. He sees stars but recovers. His body bobs on the surface like a buoy. Another bow wave, another blow to the head. This blow knocks him out knocks him cold.